Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. Instead of opening up one or two mini grows, we like, oh, let's do six. And the logic behind that really, I think, was arrogance. I think at that time, all we knew was success. Every time we opened a restaurant, it was pure success. We figured out, oh, it's kind of like money grows, it'll be great. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Are you ready to level up? The Pineapple Post is launched, and I'd like for you to be a part of it. It's a newsletter for people like you, people who want to learn and improve. It's delivered every Sunday and packed with stories, videos, and audio content from the brightest minds in our industry. We're covering the latest news, innovations, and trends to inform and inspire the way you do business. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, The Pineapple Post is here to help. Sign up at pineapplepost.news. I hope you'll check it out. So many of us were unprepared for the struggles we'd experience in 2020. Justin Rosenberg of Honeygrow was well prepared for any obstacles that came his way. Why? Some brands are built on strong economies and good luck. Others are forged in fire. In this episode, Justin walks us through the hard lessons he learned scaling Honeygrow and how that prepared him for the pandemic. We begin our conversation with the education Justin received from the School of Hard Knocks. It was all OJT, on-the-job training. I briefly worked in a restaurant in Washington, D.C. for a friend to learn. So I stodged for free on weekends for a bit, but it was really trial and fire. You nailed it with, I'm an outsider. Like, I just didn't know shit. I was like, all right, well, do stir fry and salad. And I figured like, well, I can't do like an, a Chipotle assembly line, but I want to have like the same ingredients I can get at a really good restaurant, not a shitty corner fast food place, but like a really good quality product. And that's where we get our stuff from the same vendors as top guys. But I just thought technology kiosks, it was nothing other than if you wanted a stir fry and I wanted a salad, cool. Well, this might be the way to do it while saving money from a labor standpoint. But also from an order accuracy standpoint, you choose, right? So, so you can be like, oh, I forgot to put on onions or like whatever. It's on you. But also just people are like, oh, yeah, you guys were so smart to use that technology. Like, I don't know, just kind of like it made sense. And it was right around the time where iPads started coming out. So when I was developing Honeygrow 2009 and 10, iPads were new. But I was like, I don't trust this device to deliver. So we went up working with a POS company that was okay in the beginning. And we upgraded and developed our own UX, which is what you see today. When it came to fundraising, most people go to their grandmothers for money, but you chose to raise money in a different way. Most of the money that you've raised is institutional, and I think you've raised 70 million to date? Correct. You must be doing great. I'm not. I'm like honey girl poor. We all went to the <laughs> <laughs> I read a really good book a long time ago. It was Howard Schultz's Pour Your Heart Into It. And when I was developing Honeygrow, I just kept thinking about Starbucks and like how they do that. It's an amazing company. I think Howard Schultz took it from wholesale to retail in 83. And there was a part of the book when he was raising money 
I think, to purchase Starbucks. At that point, he had Il Giornale, if that's if he said correctly. The number was like over 230 people that he pitched. Like, all right, let me give it a shot. I'm kind of just dumb like that. Like, oh, I'll try it and see what happens. And I didn't grow up with money and I didn't know anyone that really had capital. So I figured I would spend two years looking for the right partners. And anyone with a pulse, I would show my business plan and whatever, show my marketing deck. Most people were just like, good luck. Restaurants don't usually work. Or, hey, kid, you said technology, but Facebook just went public. I want to see something like this. All right. It was a very humbling time. I had this idea, this vision, this dream. I poured it out. And I pitched 94 people until someone said yes. And 93 folks prior to that one person, they were just like, no, like, good luck. Some people were nice about it. Some people were not which today when someone pitches me for something, I'm very, I'll listen, like, I'm not going to be a jerk. It was a pretty tough time. And that was the beginning. And I finally met a guy named David Robkin, who then brought on another guy, Brooklyn Fest. And they were the first two investors in the company. And this is back in 2011. How long did it take you to open after you got funding? So I got funding November 2011. We opened June 2012. So five, six, called six and a half months. Did you already have a spot picked out? Was the infrastructure in place, at least conceptually? Yes and no. It was a former pita pit in Center City, Philadelphia. So it had venting. It had stuff you need. But going back to I've never done this before. I was like obsessed with designing it. Worked with a really good architect. We actually won an award. I think it was Interior Design Magazine. I just like poured my heart and soul into designing that place. It came in on budget somehow. But we needed all new stuff like walks and hoods. And there certainly was a lot of stuff that we needed to, to get done. Can you walk me through the issues you faced in 2012? Well, let's say in 2012, the issues that I faced, A, just opening a restaurant, as a lot of your folks have you had on the show, and anyone who listens to the show knows, opening a restaurant is fucking hard. Like, that's really tough to do. So I'd never done that before. I had a chef consultant, which really wasn't working out. And so the recipes weren't really done till the day of. <laughs> I kind of like scrapping them all anyways, written out and all that. It was crazy. The team wasn't trained appropriately. You know, during training, everything was okay. Like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, pass that guy a stir fry. You'll give it to the customer. Like, oh, it's all good. And then the day we opened, we had our first customer. Like, oh, my God, a real customer. After like years of planning and developing, like, oh, my God, someone actually is eating our food. An hour later, I was like, I have a movie. Like, the kiosk stopped working. The music shut down. The air conditioning wasn't working. <laughs> I, had, I, I sure had people leaving the line. Like, employees, like, fuck this amount. This is not what I signed up for. And customers are watching all of this through an open kitchen. The model is harder than your traditional fast casual because there's a lot of concepts in LA and San Diego where, again, it's more assembly line. So it's like almost like a poop and scoop. We're cooking food made to order. And so when those tickets are coming up, like nah, 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 that's how it is in the kitchen. I give all the credit in the world to our team for dealing with it while people are watching you cook. So it's a bit of fear going on. It's tough. It's really hard. And the training that we did in the beginning in 2012 wasn't good. It just didn't work. So after a fiasco first day, I called my two partners. I'll never forget this. I was like, guys, it was a Friday. I'm like, how did yesterday go? And I'm like, it was okay. Hey, listen, I'm going to not open on Saturday this morning. We're not ready. We need to rethink things. And they were for the most part cool with it. But I was like, I'm sure they were like, what the fuck is going on with my investment? And we spent all day rejigging. Hey, we need the expediter standing here. Salad should be over there. Let's prep this like that. Let's eliminate these ingredients. And then Sunday, we started to get our flow. And then every day from there, we started getting better. Now, did you have operational control of that first location? Were you the operating partner? Were you managing it? I was the GM. I had another GM at the time. It was myself, another GM. It didn't work out with her. That's a whole other story for another day. 
And I went up firing her a month into it. My wife was giving birth to her second daughter. So I opened June 8th, 2012. Livy was born July 10th. So pretty much a month into it, Liv was born. And I told my wife after Liv was safe and good, my wife was good and safe. I'm like, hey, I love you. You're not going to see me for a while. Goodbye. So I just worked doubles. <laughs> I was opening up, closing, like sleeping for a few hours, crying, baby, like, ah, just like push through it. And simultaneously, just think about the craziness of our story. We thought, the three of us thought, hey, it'd be really good to do a, a suburban, an urban prototype, but there was a great opportunity suburban, a really showcase location, which we took as well. So while doing that, building out the second location before the first one was proven. So July, August, by September, we actually hit a profit. I found a really, really good person to work as the GM who eventually she became our director of ops back in the day. And she ran it great. I said, let me open the next one. At that point, right training, right onboarding, right products. Things were in sync. We opened the second location. It was highly successful from day one. That's amazing. I think you scaled up rapidly from there. 13, 14, 15, 16, right? Yeah, we opened up one in 2012, one in 2013, one in 2014. We opened, I think, four in 2015, and then 16, 17, and 18. Those were close to double-digit, then double-digit count for unit growth. And then there were issues in 2018. Can you walk me through those? Because I think those really speak to where people are today. So in 2015, well, backtrack, in 2013, so we opened the Honey Grove, first one, 2012. Second one is January 17th, 2013. And it was just a year and a half of just running the restaurants. That was it. It was every day coming in. I was a GM. I had someone else doing it with me. The person I mentioned before, the the other GM, director of ops. And it was a really amazing time. All I did was work on the food. It was beautiful. Honey Grow as a name, honestly, and growing local. The original concept was to buy all local, which impossible. I can't get bananas or avocado. Like I'm not getting local. But long story short, Back then, I used to go to farmer's markets, pick up stuff. There was a great hydroponics farm out in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I drive out there. I would get like romaine harvested that day. It was like this beautiful, flowing, green, delicious looking stuff. Prep it, cook it, serve it, like everything. It was just really exciting. Thai basil, like we used to have Thai basil on the menu. It was just like little things like that, which was beautiful. It was a beautiful time. And then we saw the success. We went Best of Philly in 2013, the Philadelphia Magazine. Word was out, like, hey, what is this concept? And our competitors were coming in, checking us out. It was pretty fun. 2014, we opened a location of Birds of Philly, took off. 2015 was our big first institutional raise. A group, Miller Investments, based in the Philadelphia area. They own a nice size of five guys. Great partners came on board. And that was our first big check to really grow. And the thinking was, at that time, like, well, let's grow fast. We got it. Let's get going. So we started growing and around that time, the business challenge that we had was that the cost to build a honey grow skyrocketed. It was like 800,000 and change to, it ballooned to like 1.5 million. And a lot of the challenge was we thought we were an urban concept and it works urban, it's great. But the problem back then was the cost to build without landlord help and venting all that was astronomical. So I took a step back. And said, all right, well, what if we build a smaller version of Honey Grow called Mini Grow, which I'm sure you read about? And we did that urban, we do Honey Grow Suburban, and it'll be kind of like a hub and spoke model connected with one app. So one loyalty platform, you go to, you know, I live in somewhere in Westchester, New York. I work in the city. I get it. I can go with my family on the weekends to this Honey Grow place. I got like Mini Grow in the city. Great. That was the logic. And we also said, let's 
plant our flag in as many places as possible, simply because we were getting ripped off. There were like these phony girls who called it. So we wanted to be first movers in cities. And on top of it, we were building an executive team. So it was like a crazy time in 2016. And in 2017, we launched MiniGrow. We opened up in six new markets. It was Boston, Chicago, New York, Baltimore, DC, Pittsburgh, and with a brand new team. And we enjoyed success for about five years straight. And by the end of 2017, the launch everything, I just felt something wasn't right. And you could feel like, God forbid, that you're on a plane and it explodes. Just felt like something's not good. 2018 started and the numbers for Minigrow weren't really there yet. And we're like, okay, cool. What's going on here? And instead of opening up one or two Minigrows, really one, we were like, oh, let's do six. And the logic behind that really, I think, was arrogance. I think at that time, all we knew was success. Every time we opened a restaurant, it was pure success. We figured out, oh, well, it's kind of like Honey Gross. It'll be great. I think Mini Girl lacked a lot of the things that makes Honey Gross special. Honey Girl was truly a passion project. Mini Girl was a passion project, but more utility. It was like, all right, solving a problem. Whereas like, I want to create this, right? And I created Honey Girl out of a love for food and, quite frankly, plant-based eating, which I can't seem a vegan anymore. But for about two years, I was vegan. And it was a book, T. Colin Campbell's China Study. I had high blood sugar and high cholesterol. And I was like, I don't want to go on medication for this. I read that book and reversed it. I was like, damn, this works. So that's what led to Honey Grow. I was making salads for lunch. What I had prepped and left over, I threw into a walk at night with some noodles and that was it. Like, All right, no one's really doing it. So let me try it. So back to 2018, it was scary. Boston was beginning to take off. Pittsburgh was taking off. Baltimore was taking off. But Chicago, we had one restaurant doing okay. And the other ones were not. And despite raising significant capital, the losses were staggering. It really was dragging stuff down and we were running out of cash. Oh my God, how did we go from doing unbelievably well in an instant to pretty much going bankrupt almost? It was a really, really scary time. You know, Chicago, we had one restaurant that was doing okay until it was like an act of God. Somebody walked in. Well, actually, it was Father's Day 2018. Somebody called me and she's like, hey, don't get upset. <laughs> About what? It's like somebody walked into Honey Grow in the loop with measles. Okay, so what does that mean? What do we need to close our restaurant? What do we got to do? Well, we did that, but whoever has measles and go to the hospital, they have to, uh, the Chicago Board of Health has to make a public announcement. And I'm like, that's not good. So I, we wrote a PR statement. Here's everything we're doing. We shut the place down. We deep cleaned it. I had a professional service come in. That night, it was like the local ABC and CBS, like in Honeygrow. Kate is like the word Honeygrow and measles. I mean, you could find it online. I was like, this is an act of God telling me to get the fuck out of here. And I love Chicago and we'll be back. But it was one of those things where like, all right, you know what? We have some bad real estate. We really jumped way too ahead of our skis here. We need to figure this out. And so, as I said, we ran out of cash. We had a very tough board meeting in that summer. And kudos to my investors. I mean, they really. Beyond stepped up and said, we believe in the concept. We believe in you. Okay, here's the money you need to close the restaurants, but make sure you fucking get this done. So it was a really hard time, but the plan was very simple. The plan was, all right, mini grow, we got to sunset it. Fine. New York City's hard. Definitely, I think, again, that ego got in the way with how to do it appropriately. We figured out honey grow, how to build it for the right costs. We perfected it and said, hey, let's focus more in the burbs because we're killing it. Let's just keep doing that. And then really let's dial back on the corporate expenses. Like we don't need all these people. We had a SWAT team thinking hockey stick growth. Let's just get EBITDA positive now. Let's go. And cash flow positive. So did it. First things first, made the cuts, negotiated with our landlords, got out of those leases. And as the smoke was clearing for 2018, we were like, all right, well, what do we need to do to drive sales and NOI, profit? 
And we just got after it. We started looking for things like food costs. I mean, that's a huge line item on your P&L. We started looking, excuse me, for things like scallions. We're like, hey, like, why are we not cutting the whites of scallions anymore? Starting to cut the whites of scallions, you pick up $40,000. Pineapples, right? Like we're hacking pineapples. And one day we're like, well, do we need to be doing that? Can we test something else? So I jokingly got a can of pineapples and made it from Whole Foods. I made one with it, one without it. Everyone's just like, wow, what, this one's so much better. What is it? I'm like, this is from a can. Oh my God, I pick up $300,000. Mm-hmm. Went back to, it, this was more fortuitous. I walked in to one of our restaurants and I saw a remain that was like clear. I'm like, what is this? Oh, someone's so sad. I'm like, no, forget it. Get that dark green, beautiful stuff again. And we picked up 120 grand just from that. I was like, weird. So we kept finding these like little wins over and over again. And kudos to my team. I mean, they're the ones who really got after it. I mean, they could have left. And a lot of folks jumped ship. They're like, this place is on fire. We're out of here. And there was a group that didn't. They said, we believe in this. Let's do it. And they're awesome. And I'm forever grateful. And so we really made the company more profitable than ever in 2019, just the swing from a consolidated EBITDA standpoint. And it was just a really exciting time. We started worrying about the right stuff like we did for the first four or five years, like ticket times and all the basics. It was when you grow really fast, there's new people and politics and bullshit. And we're like, goodbye. And it just went back to the basics. It's the basics is food and people and just training and just good stuff. So it was a beautiful time. I was very in the weeds again. I loved it. And we wrap up the year and beginning of this year, we were doing better than ever. And some dude ate a bat's head off or something and in a wet market. <laughs> I don't know. But here we are. So that was the beginning of God. We got to do this again and part two of a turnaround. Well, and let's talk about you and what came out of 2018 for you, because I had the beauty of when I opened my first bar and everything I had run prior to that was successful. The first bar was super successful. The fine dining restaurant was a dog out the gate. And I spent three years trying to turn it around, which eventually we did. And it was magical when we did. But the person that I was at the start of that process was not the person I was at the end of it because I had enjoyed too much success and not enough suffering. And the person that I became through that suffering, making those tough decisions, laying people off, having the tough conversations, it changed me forever. And I can't imagine that one, that didn't happen for you. And two, that that wasn't a great preparation for 2020. It was a great preparation. You really nailed it on the head because you've been through it and anyone else who's been through it in any business or life, what it's like to change and evolve when you go through those hard times. And those hard times, they're kind of like, it's like a divine curse, right? In the Torah. So it's a divine curse really is not a curse. It's like, hey, you got to get through this, but it's going to lead to a lot better stuff. And at the time, I'm waking up at four in the morning every day panicking. Oh my God, like one partner saying we should consider bankruptcy. I was just like, we can't do this. I look back and I think about the guy I was at the beginning of 2018. I don't know if I'd like that guy today. And I never saw myself as an arrogant guy, but I didn't have the veteran battle scars, right? You don't have the battle scars that it really takes to be a better leader. And it was a true proving ground for myself to prove to myself I can do this after thinking, oh my God, this isn't going to work. It was a great moment to be a leader. It sucked, man. Like you've been through it, like the firings, the press. We got a lot of negative press about it. Oh, let's write about these guys and do some dirt digging. I was like, mm-hmm. like, it's not like I want this to happen right now, dude, or whoever wrote this article. I had competitors reaching out to my executive staff, trying to poach them. I had people like leaving, right? I had the conversation with my wife and I'm like, hey, like we may need to move. This might be it. It was a really horrible 
time. It was just you constantly live with this feeling in your stomach and your soul of just keep fucking going. And as a leader, I didn't want to show that or share that with anyone on my team. I had to display confidence, but not false confidence. Guys were fine. Like my process was exactly what I did during COVID, which was full transparency. It's like, guys, here's where we're at. Here's where we're at. And at that point, I'm like, this is what I messed up. Okay. We jumped way ahead of our skis here. We didn't have the foundation we needed. We got a little arrogant because all we knew was success for four and a half, five years. We just got punched in the face. Not for everybody, but I came here to win. I'm picking my shit up and we're going. And anyone wants to come with me, let's go. If not, I understand. No problem. And that's what we did. So yeah, I think when you come out of that, and as a lot of folks are dealing with now, you're not the same person. You're 100% a better leader. You have some scars, but it will serve you tremendously and way more than if you didn't have it. Oh, it's a fascinating dynamic. For me personally, the way I explained it to my wife, the way I explained it to my team, because I did the same thing you did. I immediately came into the restaurant after seeing what a shit show it was. And I took over as GM, brought in a new executive chef. And I was like, we'll just do this together. And three months into it, I sat the entire staff down and I said, two things you need to know. One, I have never been less confident than I am today. And two, I've never been more sure than I am now as to the direction we need to go in. Because instead of blindly and arrogantly deciding this is the direction forward, the lack of confidence gave me focus and I had to think about it. So I was sure because I had taken the time to decide what the best direction was for us collectively. That's really well said. And the hardest thing of being a leader is to make those tough decisions and calls while everyone's questioning everything you're doing and you as a human. And it's hard, but when you have that much resolve to get it done, like you did, you just fucking do it. And it doesn't always work out that way. Today, there's a lot of circumstances that won't let you do that. But I think I had a lot in our favor. The model was working, very supportive investors and a fantastic team. So it sucks, dude, but you got to just push through. So take me to March, 2020. (laughs) So actually, I was in California the week before this all happened. I was surfing in Malibu and surfing in Venice. Like, oh, life's good. We're going to raise some capital for growth again. And I remember seeing people on the plane coming back to Philadelphia. I'm like, why are you wearing a mask? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, like, this is not a big deal. By the middle of the week, I think that's when the travel ban happened. NBA was canceled. I was at a dinner with a buddy of mine. I'm like, oh man, this is no joke. I think it was that Friday we started quarantine. I shut the office down. And I mean, we were on the phone that my team and I all weekend. We're like, all right, what do we got to do? And it was pretty evident that this is going to be bad. It was like, this is serious shit. They're locking, shutting down businesses. And I just knew out of the gate, this is going to be an economic disaster. So first things first, called our landlords. I personally made the phone calls and said, guys, like, we need your help. I think we call that Monday. And I'd say four to five were willing to work with us and saying, we got it. Great. You guys have been great tenants. No problem. That remaining 20% were, eh, but four to five were good to work with. The other was, again, thinking about the corporate expenses, like, okay, shit, like we can't afford this. So the first thing was we all took pay cuts and we then, this sucked because they're good people. We had to furlough, which turned to long-term termination, about eight or nine folks who, awesome people. That was painful. That was like, when we can't get you back, we're going to try to get you back. But who knew when this was going to end? And of course, I'm on the phone with every bank imaginable trying to get cash to hopefully ride this out. Our sales dropped 65%, 70%. Like, we're not going to last. We kept the restaurants open. We gave everyone the option if you want to work, great. There's no gun to anyone's head. And the challenge that came with that, of course, was people were either afraid to work or they were getting the stimulus check and they were like, I don't have to work. So that was a challenge for us as well. 
so yeah, by the end of March, it was a pretty bleak period again. We did the pay cuts, we did cuts. We called our landlords to rent a huge line item to get that relief going. And then what do we need to do to drive sales and awareness? So yeah, pretty scary time. And we immediately adopted curbside pickup, like out of the gate, one of our guys, Walt, sitting on my office. And he's just like, what if we did curbside pickup? And this is, I think, before anyone was like relaunching curbside. And I'm like, that's a good idea. So team figured out how to get curbside on the app. So you just text curbside, we come out, give you the food. That was something we did, I think, before a lot of folks did it. Our tech platform enabled us to do it. And then we just leaned heavily on third-party guys like DoorDash, Caviar, Grubhub, knowing that folks are going to discover them. And quite frankly, that kept us alive. We're like, this is now April. Like, all right, hopefully this shit works. So it was a pretty scary time. What are the plans for 2021? Yeah, so we wound up just in 2020, we wound up seeing sales begin to creep back up. And simultaneously, we reduced the corporate expenses we went back into uh, prime costs. We went back into the operating model. So what else can we do without sacrificing quality of the brands? For example, like our noodles, freshly made noodles from Sun Noodles, who are like one of my favorite partners ever. Like we're not going to not do that. We're not going to sacrifice over the brand. So we just kept looking for opportunities to really reduce prime costs and some other stuff. So we did that and sales kind of kept going back up. In the end of May, we had some pretty bad civil unrest here in Philadelphia which mm-hmm. impacted us. And that was hard and scary. And we got past it. And then by June, amazingly, we're only down 10%. And then by the end of June, July, we popped up and positively comped. So we positively comped with a reformatted operating structure. And we suddenly were in a position where the company was doing better than it ever has. So we're very grateful. The team is amazing. And we opened a restaurant in the middle of the pandemic in uh, the burbs of Philly, which turned out, thank God, to be our most successful restaurant opening meetup we've ever had. So the plan really is now, like, we want to just smart growth, stay within the box. We The big lessons learned from 2018 is we know who we are. We know our model. We know what to do, what not to do. We have an experienced group and just keep doing our thing. That's really it. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Is there mm-hmm. anything you would like to say, advice, words of encouragement? I don't know. I mean, it's a crazy fucking time right now. We are all getting punched in the face, punched in the gut one way or the other. If it's not business, it's someone you know who has COVID. If it's not that, it's something else has happened. This year in general has been so fucked up and hard outside of just the business, right? And for those who are dealing with the business, I have friends in New York that own restaurants and it's been brutal. I have friends in Philly that own restaurants and it's been terrible. It's so damn hard right now. And the generic advice of, you know, just keep going. Like not everyone can. We were able to do it. We had supportive investors. We had a model that was working. We had a good economy. I mean, that was key. I guess the only thing I could say is just somehow in some sort of way, stay positive for your team. Do it for them. I found, especially during the hard days for us, like I was, I'm a jujitsu guy, so I'm not good. I've been doing it for a few years and I go four days a week. That was my outlet. I can't do it now. So I figured out other ways to kind of do it. And not to sound cheesy or anything, but happiness at the end of the day is a muscle. I've learned that. So kind of working that muscle out every single day to make you a better leader and a better person for those around you is key. I've been meditating. That's been really helpful for me just as a person. It makes me a better person, better leader, et cetera. So kind of finding those things that can keep you going, I think is key instead of just saying, keep going. I mean, okay. But knowing you and how to keep yourself going is what's going to be key. That's Justin Rosenberg. For more on HoneyGrow, go to HoneyGrow.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our other content, or read our daily publication, go to fullconf.media. 
Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.